going to read uh, the last letter in chapter 2, 18 through 29. But before we do that, let's pray together one more time. Father, we need your help. We need you. Um, we're just asking you be near to us and you'd help us to be more like Jesus every day, to know you more and um, live out the things that we already know. Pray that this message could be helpful, um, even just to one person. Just hand that to you. Ask it in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> All right, we're going to read this next letter to the church in Thyatira, uh, 2.18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great suffering or tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on any other burden, only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers, who keeps my words, my works to the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as with earthen, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, um, one good thing about preaching through a book is that if stuff comes up, you know, you just preach whatever whatever it is. And this particular section is very similar to last the last week's sermon on Pergamum. And so that's why I don't have a PowerPoint because most of the background in terms of what's going on is the same background because they're having a similar, not exactly the same, but a similar problem as Pergamum. So just kind of by way of review to talk about some of the things going on in Roman culture at this time, that Thyatira, just like we talked about last week, uh, has guilds where people would join to be a part of their job. There's some inscriptions they found, particularly from Thyatira, about guilds that dyed cloth. And um, that makes you think, obviously, of Lydia from Acts, who was a seller of purple, purple goods, but... Anyways, these guilds were not what we think of as like trade unions today that they would go and when they would meet, they would sacrifice to a god. And not only that, was there sacrifice to gods, uh, false gods, so idol worship at these, to be a part of these job, you know, guilds. All kinds of other idol worship was going on in the time. And it wasn't what we think of today of idol worship in many ways. It involves some pretty um, distasteful, uh, sensual, um, sexual immorality and things like that, along with these uh, sacrifices. And last week I read from Augustine, the City of God, where he talks, he's writing this appealing to, actually he was still in the Roman Empire at the time later on, but a couple hundred years later, but he's appealing to them and saying, you go to these sacrifices and you he was talking specifically about the mother of the gods is one of the ones he said you go and you sing these songs to the mother of the gods and if you went back home you wouldn't even repeat them to your own mother so do you really think that's going to please her you know the mother of the gods and if it does why are you worshiping her you know um and so basically that kind of gives you a feel for what was going on there that people wouldn't even want to repeat the things they said let alone did to their own mom um and so that gives you a feel for what's going on at the time and how here in this particular section we're going to talk about, again, kind of two weeks in a row, you know, sexual immorality is a big thing. And so 
we talked, you know, just briefly last week about it, but going to just go in a little bit more detail about it and then also apply it to our day and age as well. But before we get there, let's go through these particular pieces of the letter that are the same as all the other letters. <clears throat> First, starting out, a vision of Jesus. And just as a reminder, the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus, or you could say it, the revealing of Jesus. Uh, what do we need you know, in terms of the end times? What do we need every day? We need to see Jesus. And in each one of these cases with the church, whatever problem they had, and there were various problems, they all needed to know and remember something about Jesus, about who He was, and to think about that. And that's how Jesus introduces Himself in these letters. He's describing Himself, and it's something from chapter 1 with the vision that John had about Jesus. So what does it say specifically here about Jesus to this church in Thyatira? What do they need to hear? So this is 2.18. The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like fire and whose feet were like burnished bronze. So let's start with just a few pieces of this. The Son of God. Well, this is, again, kind of really speaking into Roman context that the emperors claim to be the Son of a God or and also gods themselves. And so, again... All throughout, you know, Revelation, there's lots of things where Jesus is shown to be better than Caesar. And, I mean, Caesar called himself Lord. There's lots of things we've already covered. But basically, the first thing is, Jesus is better than Caesar. Jesus is actually the Son of, of God. Jesus is God himself, whereas the Caesars claimed to be that and weren't. So that's the first thing. The second thing is eyes like fire. Again, we talked about this briefly before, but just to remind you, eyes like fire in Greek literature were, was like passionate, um, but fire also has this element of purity, right? That at this time in, in this age, that fire was a purifying thing. That if there was metal that needed to be purified, it was put in the fire. And you see kind of that connected with the feet like burnished bronze. There's a little phrase that's left out in this, in this letter, but was describing Jesus in chapter 1, and it seems significant there. In chapter 1, it adds a little phrase after burnished bronze. It says, His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. So you see that image of you know purity there. Um, refined, meaning the, pu- the impurities have been taken out. It's also talking about His glory, that Jesus was glorious um, as well. Uh, but you can see how this relates to Thyatira, that they need to remember about Jesus, whose eyes are passionate and jealous, who like fire, and and who's pure. Um, he's like a refining fire. It's important because they've forgotten that. Um, this situation with Jezebel is not good, obviously. Okay, so this is what they need to remember about Christ. Now, the commendation. I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Well, there's a lot of good things here that Jesus is actually commending. It's pretty remarkable, and something we can learn from this and apply it to our lives is you can, we can have a lot of good things in a church or as individual Christians and still have some pretty big messed up areas, right? That we could... I mean, this is quite a commendation. I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. There's a lot of good things going on. But as we see later on in this section, there's some bad things, some pretty terrible things that he has to correct. And so, well, we want to emulate these. We want to be commended for our works, for our love, for our faith. We want to endure. We want to be serving one another. And... We want to be growing. He says, your latter works exceed the first, and that's a good thing. He, you know, we already read one of the letters where it's the opposite, and he's, he's rebuking them for that. But their latter works were not. They weren't doing the works they did at first. And so, these are all good things, but it's a reminder to us that we don't want to get complacent. We don't want to start thinking, well, I'm, I've got love, I've got faith, I've got all these good works, I'm diligent, I'm persevering, and then be lax in other areas and rest on the things that we are doing and overlook sin because that's what's really going on here in this church. Um, and that's what Jesus really corrects them on. 
The other thing I want you to notice here about the commendation is something later on that Jesus says, but basically that all the churches would know that I search the heart. I'm the one that searches the heart. And one thing we can learn from that is we can have these outward things, right? We can have love and service and faith and perseverance and some outward things, but we can't forget God's searching our heart. God knows what's going on behind closed doors. God knows what's going on not just behind closed doors, but behind you know closed eyelids or in, in our minds, in our hearts. And so we don't want to, again, rest on some good things we're doing and overlook even internal things, even heart things. It's important. It matters to God. So let's talk about the correction here. It's a little bit complicated here, but I think there are four groups here, and I'm just going to briefly talk about each one of the groups. It's not easy to tease all this out because we have just a few verses about this church, the situation going on. It doesn't go into great detail, but I'm going to do my best to try and understand what it says and and present it here. But I think there's four groups here, and the correction is kind of split up. So I'll give you the four groups, and then let's reread these sections. The four groups are Jezebel is teaching. She's teaching others to practice sexual immorality. That's the first group. Then there's people that are tolerating that. And I'll kind of talk about that. Then there's also people that are participating with Jezebel. And then there's a fourth group that uh, he says to the rest. And they are actually rejecting this. So those are the four groups. And they don't all come in order like that. But I think they're all here. So let's read this correction section one more time just to see that. Revelation 2, 20-23. But this I have against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. So there's people that are tolerating who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idol. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. And then those who oppose, verse 24, but to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, and, and I'll stop right there, but that just kind of shows the four groups here. So let's talk about these four groups. First, Jezebel is teaching these things. Not only is she committing sexual immorality, she's teaching others that it's okay. And he says that, God says that he's called her to repent and she's refused. He's called her to repent. And she's refused. We don't know exactly what this looked like. I, I think it's, I'm gonna guess this is not 100%. I think it's possible that those who are opposing are one of the ones that corrected her because they aren't rebuked or, or anything like that. They're not tolerating her. Um, and so that's possible. It's also possible that God had a special message for her, convicted her through the Spirit, repent. Uh, we don't know exactly. But we do know that God gave this clear message. You should not be teaching this. And, you know, let's apply that to our situation. We can't tolerate false teaching. We can't tolerate teaching that says sin's okay or sin's not a big deal or even encourages sin. Uh, that's absolutely not what Christ wants, and that's very clear here in his rebuke. Um, so there's Jezebel, which is probably a reference. I mean, it's possible the person was named Jezebel, but it's a lot of the commentators think that it's actually they're referring to the Old Testament Jezebel and kind of it's a, it's a rebuke in that sense. Um, either way, the point remains the same. So that's the first group. The second group is those who tolerate. Um, this I have against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. This is kind of an interesting thing uh, because the reason I think there's two groups here, those that tolerate and those who participate, is because this word tolerate is a bit confusing to try and explain, but but when we hear tolerate, we think, oh, we kind of put up with that. But it's a little bit stronger in the Greek. It's actually literally the word forgive. It's the same word Jesus says, you know, forgive your brother. Um, if you don't forgive, I'll, uh, I won't forgive you. The point being that they're saying this is wrong, right? This is sin. Like, I for, I'm forgiving you of this wrong thing. Um, and in that way, tolerating it. So, when I hear tolerate, it's like, well, that's kind of a little annoying, but I'm going to put up with it. 
it was a bit stronger than that. It's like, this is wrong, but we will, we'll, we'll keep continually overlooking it. And so it seems that these people are saying, you don't forgive someone unless they sinned, right? Um, or unless it's wrong what they're doing. And so there's a group that's not for it, but they're just continually saying, that's ah, okay. She's still teaching. It's okay. We forgive you for, you know, this is wrong, but we forgive you. And we disagree, but just never putting their foot down, basically. So that's the tolerate group. Um, we, it's hard because I can't think of a word that gets that across. And obviously the translators thought tolerate kind of gets part of it across. You don't tolerate something if it's a good thing, obviously. So I think that's why they put it in there that way. So there's those. But then there's others that are actually participating. Um, and this is, this is a scary thing, obviously, too. Uh, verses 22. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great suffering or tribulation unless they repent of her works. So there's a call there to repent, repentance. Um, something we can learn from this apply is somebody says something's okay and you follow, God still calls you to repent of it, right? Um, that it's, we have responsibility to follow the Lord and people can lead us. We can follow someone that's false, but ultimately the responsibility is still going to fall on us as individuals, right? He's calling the people who are participating to repent. He's not just calling the false teacher to repent. He's calling the, the those who are participating and so we know that from James, you know, teachers are going to be held to a higher account, but that doesn't mean that we as listeners and hearers are taking things in. If we choose to sin and follow in a sinful direction, that we're still going to be ultimately responsible. That's the third group. And then the fourth group, it seems like, is separate. And it's this phrase, but to the rest of you, to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only, only, only hold fast what you have until you come. Like I said, it's possible this fourth group is one to call to her to repent, who God used to call her to repent. We just don't know. But this group is more, they're not just tolerating. They're saying, they're, they're not holding. They're not holding to this teaching, um, or even tolerating it. And so he's not laying on a burden on them. What can we learn from this? I think it's good to take some other examples from scripture that are similar to this. Well, it's similar to what we talked about last week about passivity. We don't want to be passive. We want to stand up for the truth when there's an opportunity. If something's wrong, to say, "Hey, this is sinful," and to not say yeah, well, I disagree, I, th I don't think it's right, and just let it go on and on and on. Um, not to tolerate it, uh, especially when there's teaching involved and especially when people are being pulled into sin because of it. It's a serious thing. It reminds me of the situation in Samuel with Eli. You remember this situation with Eli? Okay, it's a very similar situation of the tolerating because he calls sin, sin, but then he doesn't do anything about it. So I'll just read this to you. That Eli had, was one of the priests and then his sons were the ones sinning. I'll read this section to you and you can see some of the similarities. Now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with, with the women who were serving in the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. So he's saying not only... He said he's not doing it, and he's telling them this is evil. So that's he sees that it's sin. No, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? So they're calling it sin. He's calling it sin. But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. So they didn't listen. But then, later on, Eli's rebuked, and this is what God says through Samuel to Eli. Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel, at which the two ears of everyone who hears will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end, and I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the, for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. So, 
You see the connection there. You see how someone can say, well, that's sin and I disagree with it, and then just let it go on and on and actually not restrain, not step in, not do what you need to do in terms of passivity, um, and even not participate, but still ultimately be held responsible. And so it seems like that's a similar situation here with Jezebel, where they're tolerating, they're saying it's sin, but they're not doing anything. And it's not right. It just reminds us, this whole situation, this whole letter to Thyatira reminds us good deeds don't outweigh bad deeds. Right? Good deeds aren't going to outweigh bad deeds. Whether that's as individuals or as a church or anything. That, well, Ecclesiastes says this, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. We want to be diligent and we don't want to set, I think this is the right phrase, like set on our laurels. You know, it's like, um, we don't want to look at the good things and be okay with the fly and the perfumer's ointment. We want holiness uh, in every area. We want to do what God wants us to do in every area. We don't want... I'll give you another example. We don't want to refuse to do sin, like not mit, not commit... The Bible doesn't use these categories, but they're real nonetheless. Uh, sins of commission, like doing bad things, but then have sins of omission where we don't do what we know we ought to do. So an example would be uh, Proverbs 18.9. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. I feel like that's that verse is... I thought about that many times, especially as a special ed teacher. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. It's easy to be slack in your work. you know. Um, or even as a homeowner, I think about it a lot because, well... I've used this example before, but if you don't clean your gutters, your foundation is going to be messed up. <laughs> and we've dealt with that where the gutters were up, you know, kept up, and then we deal with the problems later on, you know, um, years down the road. One way to destroy your house is do nothing. When something goes wrong, don't do anything. It's not you knocking down all the walls, you know, um, but it, eventually it's going to end up the same, right? It's going to be just as destroyed as if you just knocked down all the walls yourself. Um, but we can do the same thing spiritually. We can refuse to be, you know, participate in sin, but then not do the things God wants us to do. Commit sins of omission, where it's like, I'm not going to participate, but I'm not also going to stop. I'm not willing to step in. I'm not willing to do anything. So we want to avoid passivity because Jesus is calling to be Lord over every area of our life. Right? We don't want any flies in the ointment. We don't want to say, we're going to do what God wants, except this area over here. That's too much work. Or that's not my responsibility. Um, we want to do our best in every area. Okay. This is very similar to last week. So I, on terms of the passivity and all these things, I'm not going to keep on going because I want to turn it in a different direction. Because two weeks in a row... This, these letters are about sexual morality. So I think it's good to kind of talk about that. I mean, to talk a little bit more about it. And last week, kind of the tone I took was, we can be thankful. Like we looked at some of the things from Rome and the culture there and, and you know, uh, how bad it was, some things that aren't okay today. I think today, though, it would be good to think about the opposite where we've got different uh, temptations in our culture of sexual morality than they had there that are more difficult and just as sinful. And so to talk about some of those. So because this came up twice um, in a row, it's kind of like, um, well, I just think you should trust the Lord and, and think we need to talk about it again. Okay, so let's talk about this, that specifically both these churches had a problem with sexual immorality. I think what would be good is to take a step back because our culture questions morality, period. Uh, quite often. And then that spills into sexual immorality and, and all other areas. But to start, let's take back, let's take a step back and just talk about what the Bible's teaching about morality. Because if we don't understand where morality comes from, what God is doing, why God is the one that has the right to say, you can do this and you can't do that, then any area we're going to be confused in. So we'll start with just general morality and then move into sexual immorality and morality as well. What's right and what's wrong. 
So I'll start with kind of our culture, and I would guess it's not new. And I know it's not new because back even to Adam and Eve, some of the same lies are being told about God's morality, God giving us rules and commands. And those lies are things like God's not out for our good. God doesn't really care about us. And that's not true. Uh, that's a lie. God, when God sets out a rule, it's for our good always. God is out for your good. He's not trying to hold something from you or He's not trying to set up hoops just to see who jumps through them. You know, if you've ever been in high school or college, you can feel that. It's like, these just feel like hoops. And it's like, you get a piece of paper at the end and what does it say to the, your you know, employer? Basically, I'm willing to jump through hoops. <laughs> and... God's not doing that to us. God is not seeing who's willing to jump through the hoops. God actually has a reason for everything He tells us. And He is out for your good. And there's a great section in Deuteronomy that I think of when I think of morality and immorality. I guess I should just explain that. When we say immorality, we're talking about sin. Immorality just means doing something that God doesn't want you to do. Morality is what God is saying is right to do. Um, righteousness and unrighteousness. But here's a section from Deuteronomy that I feel like sets this out really clearly. What's God's purpose and what's God's heart? Because, well, before I read it, I'll say one more thing on Adam and Eve. You could almost read Adam and Eve, what God told them to do in terms of not eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as a threat. Okay, like, Okay, with kids, I'm sure you've had kids, and one kid said to the other kid, if you touch that, I'm going to do this or do that. <laughs> and it's just, a, it's just a selfish threat. And when God says to Adam and Eve, if you eat that fruit, you're going to die, it wasn't like that. It wasn't God threatening them because He wanted them to you know, fall in line. God was actually out for their good. And I think many people in our culture are feeling that. It's like God's just threatening me because He's selfish because He doesn't want me to do what I want to do. That's not, what it, that's not what it is. That's not what morality is. Deuteronomy 30, 19-20 says that this is... Uh, I'm going to jump around a little bit, but 15, 16, and then 19-20. and 20. See, I have set before you today life and good and death and evil. The Lord your God... Uh, sorry. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live. I'm going to skip ahead to 19. I call heaven and earth therefore to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice, holding fast to Him, for He is your life and your length of days. So I really like this section because he's saying God set before you life and death, good and evil. Therefore choose life. God wants you to have real, full life. Um, and... That's why He's giving you rules and commandments. He's not doing it to see who's going to jump through the hoops. God's saying, this is evil and it leads to death. What I'm calling you to do is follow Me. Follow My commands. They lead to life. And that's true always. Um, and He's appealing to them. Appealing to not only them to live, but for their children as well. God is our Creator and He has designed the world. He knows what you're designed for. Your purpose for us is. And so He can say, this is the right way and this is the wrong way. This is the way that leads to life. This is the way that leads to death. And God's calling you to life. God is out for your good. Don't believe the devil, you know, just like in Genesis 3, saying God's not really out for your good. You don't really need to listen. He's trying to keep something good from you. It's always the opposite. Sin and immorality... Righteousness and God's commandments and obedience is like a shepherd telling the sheep, stay in the pen. Okay? Stay inside this pen. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to take care of you. And the sheep saying, I'd really like to be out there. That looks better out there. God just doesn't want me living the good life. And so I'm going to get out there with all the wolves because that looks like a lot of fun. That's foolish, right? It's not true. It's a lie. And that's what God's doing uh, in our lives when He's trying to lead us and guide us. Not only that, but you see in this section that it's a separation from God. That that's another huge piece of what sin is. It separates us from God. We're not just saying, 
I'm going to do this thing that hurts me, but God, I don't want, not only am I going to do this, I don't want you to be Lord of my life. I don't want to know you. And so he's saying, if you want real life, that means being near to me. And people are choosing, again, not only death, but choosing separation from God, which is, again, death uh, leads to death. How does this relate to sin and sexual immorality specifically? The vast majority of sins that I can think of, and I'm not saying 100%, are somebody taking something that's good at the wrong time in the wrong way or in the wrong way. There are shortcuts trying to get the good thing in the wrong way or at the wrong time. Or maybe an excess of good things. So when the devil came to tempt Eve or to tempt, when it comes to tempt us, what we say is not right now or not in this way. Because in many cases, something good is being dangled before Christians, non-Christians. We won't go into all the details, uh, but I'll just give you a couple examples. Justice is a good thing. We want justice to happen, right? When there's a sin, we want justice to be done. But what's vengeance? Vengeance is saying, I can't wait for God to step in. I can't wait for God to you know, have the course of what He wants to happen run out. I'm going to take it into my own hands. I'm going to do it my way now. And that is a good thing. Justice is a good thing. Taken and stolen in the wrong way, right? Taking it into my own hands. And we call that sin. Even though it started out, it can start out as a good desire twisted and, and stolen. Food is a good thing. God made food good. There's lots of verses in the Bible celebrating the goodness of God's creation of food. But what's gluttony? Gluttony is taking the good gift from God and making it more than it should be in our life, right? It's saying, like, I'm going to take this good thing, I'm going to make it to excess, even to the point where it actually hurts me now. Um, that's not good. Drunkenness. The Bible describes wine as a good gift from God. There's a lot of verses on it. And yet, what's drunkenness? It's a good gift taken to excess to the point where you don't have your faculties about you anymore. A job to provide for your family, that's a good thing. But working so much that you neglect your family, that's a bad thing. That happens often. A good thing taken to excess. Or money. Uh, is it good? To, is money a good thing to provide for your family? Absolutely. I want my kids to have clothes and shoes and food and a home. But what if I decide to steal to get it? That's a sin, right? I'm taking a good gift and I'm taking it in the wrong time and in the wrong way. A lot of these, a lot of sins are shortcuts. Shortcuts to the life that God's giving and taking it in a, in a wrong way. I mean, even think about uh, like illegal drugs. A lot of times it's there's a feeling people want. And it's like, uh, I don't want to feel euphoric because I've worked hard and I finally accomplished a goal or something like that. It's like, I just want to feel it whenever I want. And I'm going to destroy my body to get that feeling. Um, those are just examples. Now, Wrapping all that in and reminding the thing we're specifically talking about is sexual immorality. It's important, I feel like, for all that context because in terms of sexual immorality, we've got to remember, God is not trying to keep anything good from you. God is trying to give you life. God wants what's good for you. I mean, think about this. We have a whole book of the Bible celebrating marriage and sex in um, Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. It's a good thing that God is for. God is pro uh, marriage. But there's a context, which is the relationship between one man and one woman in a lifelong covenant. God's out for your your physical good, your emotional good, your spiritual good, relational. And all that has a right context, which is marriage. It's actually really, really amazing as I was doing some research on this. What's the natural fruit of um, marriage is kids. And there's secular organizations out there just basically begging dads to be involved with their kids. And it's really pretty remarkable how there's all this research about how big a deal it is to have two parents. And the list was so long, it's like they wrote a whole book on it. How, how what's the right context for um, 
for kids? Well, it's a marriage between one man and one woman who are there to care for the kids. It's unreal, all the effects. How does this relate to immorality? Sexual immorality is saying, I want this thing now, in the wrong context. What happens? Hurt. Death. Right? Little pieces of death throughout somebody's life. I'll just read you some of the amazing things. Like, just having parents, two parents, because the good gift of sex was in the right context of marriage. What that changes, not only in, in terms of relationships in, between man and the woman, but between the, for the kids. And this is just like a sh- super short summary, even though this is going to be like a little bit long. Um, but just to just, just blew my mind. Um, it just shocked me. I had never really connected a lot of the problems with kids to sexual immorality before and realizing I'm going to steal this good thing in the wrong time, and I don't care if it hurts other people, because it really does. Um, But here's the positives for having a mom and a dad. The mother is less likely to have complications during pregnancy. The baby is less likely to die in the first years of life. The baby has improved cognitive development up to age three. The kids, um, if dads read to their kids, the kids learn better, faster, faster. In the long term, they have better educational attainment. They enjoy reading more. They have better behavior. Kids with the same father in the home from infancy are less likely to be lonely and anxious as teenagers. Girls with fathers and a father and a mother have higher self-esteem as a teenager. They're less likely to have teenage pregnancy. There's lower rates of substance abuse, depression, suicide, and contact with the criminal justice system. Kids with fathers and mothers... Uh, do better in every measurable subject. <laughs> they have better empathy, better peer relationships. And literally, there's like a book of like, I can't, I can't remember the number, it was like 150 statistically significant effects for having two parents. It's crazy. And all that is to say, God's out for our good. And God's out for our family's goods. And there's so much more. Um, every reason that people are trying to shortcut God's plan for marriage and God's good design, it backfires. Uh, it just, it's like, ah, I want to be happy. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to try and take this thing now, even though God says wait. It turns out um, people aren't happier. Married people are actually happier. And on and on and on. There's a long list of things that in the end, the thing you're trying to get out of, you're, get out of it, you're losing. It's a lie. Um, and I won't go into all the details on that. Now, I want to go the opposite direction and talk about our culture specifically, sexual immorality, because we don't have necessarily, um, well, we don't have, like we talked about that house with a back door and a big advertisement over it, but there is still a danger of sexual immorality in our culture that's actually quite prevalent and in some ways is worse than it was in the Roman context. And I'll, I'm going to give you uh, just an example, okay? The word here for sexual morality is something that you've probably heard of, pornea or porn, porneo, which is the verb form of pornea, okay? So this is a big problem in our culture. And I actually have a handout. Uh, there's so much to say about it that I just thought, I'll just print this out. I should have had Jess edit this because I am pretty bad at spelling and grammar and stuff like that. So this is a rough draft that I didn't have time to fully draft. <laughs> so know that going into it. But it's just some thoughts. Specifically, this is for parents. Um, I mean, anyone can take it as long as you ask your parents if you're a kid. But um, but there's so much that I wanted to say, and I didn't know exactly how to say it all, but I wanted parents to have some awareness but all that is to say that in many cases, this is similar to that house of the little brothel, right? That we looked at last week. That phones are the biggest um, culprit of sexual immorality, temptation of sexual immorality, internet in our culture. I'm just going to give you a few things, just brief, but again, just read this and look at it because there's so much more that I. I don't have time to go into and just to talk about it with your with your kid with your wife and and then kids as well because the reality is 
Statistically speaking, there's probably somebody in here who's struggling, almost certainly, um, or has struggled. And the reality is, is that what this section is talking about is that there's freedom, there's repentance and forgiveness in Christ. And I just, if that's you here, I'll just say something to you. Talk to Andy or I, you know, or talk to your parents. You're not going to be the first person and you're not going to be the last person. You can pretend like nothing's wrong or you could be honest and then a year from now, two years from now, you can look back and think, man, I'm so thankful God delivered me and have the real thing. It's better to have the real thing than pretend to have the real thing, right? And it's not going to be easy. But talking to me, talking to your parents, talking to Andy or you know somebody trusted person, it's going to be a lot easier than meeting Jesus on Judgment Day and having not dealt with it. Um, because there are consequences, not only eternally but now. Like there's, you're bringing little deaths into your life right now. Um, that this is not what God planned. And for parents, I guess I would say you know pick this up, read it, think about it. There's just some suggestions like, hey, consider this, think about this. Be aware of this because statistically, looking at the research, and again, this is not all research from a Christian organization. I just put different thoughts that I thought were helpful that I found. And if you want the sources, I can give you those. I don't think I don't think I put the sources on all of it, but I can always send it to you if you if you're interested. The reality is, your kids are going to encounter this if they haven't already. And that's our culture. And so we have to talk to our kids and prepare our kids and also give our kids what God is, God's plan is. What God, we're not just saying, you know, this is, don't do this. We're saying, here's God's good plan. This, this is a good desire. Don't take it in the wrong way. What's, what's the right way to handle this? It's marriage, um, between a man and a woman in the right time, in the right context. And so I just want you to be aware. I want you to be thinking. And also to know, like, look right here, like God is calling them to repent and He's giving them hope. The ones that are, you know, got into this false teaching with Jezebel, He's saying, repent. There's opportunity to know Christ, that there's no sin that Christ's blood can't cover. And so, I want you to be aware of this and pray about it. Talk to somebody. Um, The statistics are crazy. Just the percentage of kids that are encountering this or or whatever, I'll just give you one statistic. This is adolescent boys. Okay, this is not have ever uh, seen pornography. This is frequent um, frequent pornography use between adolescent boys, 75%. 75%. Uh, actually, 72%. Um, 72%. That is self-reported. So that's some... I don't think people would... I don't think that... There's a chance that somebody lies and says, I didn't or I don't frequently. I think there's a very small chance that somebody would say, yeah, I do this when I don't. And so it's probably higher than that. And so that's a lot. Uh, That's a lot. And that's not just encountering it. That's frequent. So there's a huge issue in our culture, and I want to bring it up and make you aware of it and and if you're if you're not thinking about his parents, I want you to think about it. But I want to end on what this section ends on, which is hope. Uh, here's the ending. These are those who are opposing these things. Hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, I will give him authority over the nations, and he will rule over them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and will give him the morning star. Okay, what's our hope? Well, ultimately, our hope is not that we've lived our life perfectly, right? He's offering this to those who even are doing these uh, things with Jezebel is if they repent. And so there's hope. There's forgiveness. We talked about what the victorious Christian life is, and the first thing is repentance. It's a life of repentance, and it's a life of unity with Jesus. I guess we could say those are the two big things, that all these all these benefits, all the hope we have is because we're united with Christ. 
that were covered by His blood. Our sins are covered by His blood and all the benefits that He received from His perfect life and, and death are ours because we're united in Him, because, we're, because of our faith in Him and our unity in Him. And so all these promises here are because of Jesus. Because ultimately, Jesus is the one that's going to have authority over the nations. And He's going to rule with a rod of iron. And yet He's saying, I'm going to share that with those who trust Me. And the second, the second part, I will give Him the morning star, is specifically talking about our unity about knowing God, about we get Christ. In Revelation 22, it's very clear Jesus is the morning star. Uh, I'll read you this section here, Revelation 22, 16 and 17. I, Jesus, sent my angel to testify about these things to the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and the one who desires the water of life without price. We get to know God. And that's not only are we united with Him in His death and forgiveness and freedom, we are united with Him in His reign. And that's ultimately what our hope is. Our hope is not in this life, it's not that we're going to be victorious in this present life, like conquering the world, reigning with a physical kingdom, which is obvious Jesus didn't do that when He came the first time. But He will do it the second time. We're going to, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and God is going to physically reign as King for us in this new world. And we can be there with Him and know Him. It's an amazing thing that God wants us to know Him at all, but He's offered that to us through His Son, through God Himself, Jesus, dying for us. He's the morning star and we can know Him. We can take the water of life even though we already rejected it and we don't deserve it, but yet through a gift from Him for what He purchased for us. Christ will finally defeat evil. That's the other promise here that this rod of iron as breaking breaking all these things. There's so much... More, actually, sexual immorality comes up later in Revelation, so I won't get into all the details, but the reality is there's a lot of people that are really messed up, that our culture is tempting, just like Jezebel, into these things, and they're really struggling emotionally, spiritually, physically. That includes boys and girls, and the reality is one day all of it's going to be put to, 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 to an end, and I'm very thankful for that. Just the statistics on things like people who are involved in some of this sexual immorality, um, uh, business side of it and all that, the, you know, the, the engine behind it, the suicide rate and the depression and all that is just so bad. It's remarkably bad. And, um, we can just pray whenever we think about these things. Yes, is it a temptation? Absolutely. In our culture, like, you know, the reality is this though. It's not just like, oh, wow, I'm going to resist this, which we do want to resist. But we want to pray for the other people on the other side because they're souls too, just like Jezebel. Think about that. God warned Jezebel, who's like tempting people into all this, you repent. There's an opportunity for those people to brought into the kingdom. And so let's pray both directions. Let's pray, God, hey, would you protect our family, our marriage, and our kids? But God, there's people on the other end you know, making these websites and, and, you know, all on every end of that and they need you too. Would you save them? Would you pull them out? Um, because just like you gave Jezebel the opportunity to, to repent, God, would you, you know, convict them? So that's Thyatira and kind of to summarize, these are real things. God really cares about purity um, and holiness. We don't want to fly in our ointment. And if there's something that's going on with you, talk to your parents, talk to Andy or I, talk to um, one of the older ladies, whatever you need to do. But this is serious, and God is out for your good. And whenever we encounter things in our culture, we can have a reason for the hope that's in us and say, God is actually out for our good. Yeah, you know, the reason God, you know, the Bible says this is because God cares about marriages. God cares about kids. God cares about relationships. 
and between husband and wife, God cares about all these things and He wants life for people and He wants a relationship with people. And that's why He's asking. Um, and He loves us so much that even when we destroy that or go against that, He's calling us to repent and welcoming us back through Jesus. So there's hope for you. And I just pray that uh, this would be a help to you, something to think about and parents to talk about and pray about. With. Why don't we, um, let's pray together and I'll put these back on that table you can just grab one it's only front and back it's just it's almost just like a conversation starter really there's not there's so much more that could be said but something to think about so let's pray god i do just pray uh if there is anybody here struggling that you would just minister to them and draw near them and uh, work in their life um i pray for people um that are just hurting um that you just know who those people are i pray just like jezebel you would even if they're deep into sin you'd call them to repent um and that they would you'd save them out of their pit they dug for themselves and draw them out and be gracious to them and love them and that they could know you um thank you so much for forgiveness thank you jesus for being willing to die for sinners and love us despite all our faults and failures i pray as a church god would you protect us we don't want to fly in our ointment uh, we don't want to um, neglect something that you want us to do would you help us to be um, honoring to you in every area of our life and thinking and uh, just everything we want to you to be glorified we want to be near to you Thank you for marriage. Thank you for um, kids. And I just pray that you protect our homes, protect our kids, help us to be diligent to do what you would have us to do in terms of that as parents. We ask all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right. I'll put this back there. And uh, yeah, I think you should take a look. I think you'll be kind of surprised at some of this. So, All right. We're dismissed.